0: And I, I think we all forget that when we commit to memory, we're doing far more than just furnishing the mind. What you memorize, it becomes a part of your soul in a way. And you know, to this day, I have music and poems and scriptures that are so deep inside me that it's more than just you know a mental thing it's more than just oh i memorized it mechanically so i can spit it back or people use this word regurgitate in a in a condescending or derogatory manner um no it's it's deeper inside me than even my conscious mind
1: welcome to homeschool conversations with humility and doxology a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Hello friends, today I am joined by Andrew Pudua, who I'm sure you all know, but for those who don't know, Andrew is the founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing and a father of seven. Traveling and speaking around the world, he addresses issues related to teaching, writing, thinking, spelling, and music with clarity, insight, practical experience, and humor. His seminars for students and parents and teachers have helped transform many a reluctant writer and have equipped educators with powerful tools to dramatically improve students' skills. Although he is a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Japan and holds a certificate of child brain development from the Institute for the Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia, his best endorsement is from a young Alaskan boy who called him the funny man with the wonderful words. I just loved that. (laughs) He and his heroic wife, Robin, have homeschooled their seven children and are now proud grandparents of 15, making their home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I am just absolutely delighted you are here. There was your official bio, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and think back to those early years. How did you first get started homeschooling? Yeah,
0: sure. Well, thank you, Amy. Yeah, it's awfully painful to hear your, your own bio read. But um, yeah, so we um, we started homeschooling in 1990, and um, the two oldest girls were 10 and 8, and they had been in kind of a, a cottage school. It was like some woman in her home. She had 12, 15 kids. It was very Montessori-esque, and it was really, it's kind of like a big homeschool, but with other people's kids there. And we had a three-year-old and then that school uh, just kind of stopped. And so there were no options. There was nothing like it. Um, At that time I was working very, very hard, uh, trying to eke out a living as a music teacher, waiting tables, weekends and nights to bring in a few extra bucks. So private school was just out of the question and um public school was equally as um unsavory to us at the time uh, my wife had just completed a degree in elementary education so she kind of had the inside scoop on what it might be like to put the kids in a in a regular school and uh we had a an, an infant so she was home anyway so we started the homeschool thing at that point, and I quickly found it was very, very handy to have uh, some older kids at home who could help you with various other things, like the business you're trying to do, um, care of the younger children in the environment, and uh, homeschooling just kind of was a natural. We didn't know uh, too many people, I think, Maybe we knew one or two other families, but we weren't really connected with them. So it's kind of those early days where it was just you and, you know, you're trying to find various stuff. There really wasn't even an Internet to search for information or curriculum. And uh, so that was that was the beginning. And then uh, in 1994, um, I got this crazy idea to teach a writing seminar. Uh, teaching writing structure and style. And I did that in Seattle and managed to get a homeschool group over there to uh, send out brochures or flyers. And this is pre-internet. There was no even like email blasts or websites really. Uh, So uh, I managed to get 20 people to pay 40 bucks to listen to me talk for a whole day. And I thought, well, that's a good deal. That's more than I make in a whole week teaching violin as hard as I can. So between 95 and 99, I kind of built uh, Institute for Excellence in Writing as a, as a side business, really with the goal to figure out how, could I make enough money to afford to continue teaching music? I was a Suzuki violin and kinder music teacher. and And we had another kid by that time. So we're up to five. And, uh, and then in 99, uh, we were up to six, and I was making more money uh, teaching writing seminars and selling VHS videotapes, if you can believe that, uh, than I was teaching music. So at that point, we relocated to a different state, and I went full-time into IEW. Our seventh and last child was born in 2000. So that was kind of the the decade. and And really... With very few exceptions, uh, all the kids were homeschooled all the time. I, I have put a child in a particular school for a particular reason, usually to help save mother's sanity. Um, and every time I've done it, I've hated it, and then I'd swear it off and say, I'll never put a kid in school again, and then, you know, never say never. But uh, almost all the kids for almost all the time.
1: You know, you were starting homeschooling around the same time my parents and my husband's parents were, and I absolutely adore talking to those who were home educating and that kind of first generation, first like 1.5 generations of homeschoolers. I actually did a whole interview series um, and interviewed all these first generation people like who were on the cutting edge homeschooling without the internet, a lot of times making things legal in their states. And then um, did a kind of contrast with other second-generation homeschoolers. I think it's really good for homeschoolers today to hear kind of both perspectives, both those of us who are like, well, not those of us. I am no longer young and fresh. (laughs) I'm middle-aged, but that kind of like young zeal and excitement and also like this perspective. It's really helpful to hear. So. Having this sort of longer-term perspective, I'm sure you've learned and grown over the years. Are there any ways in which your perspectives on home education have have grown or changed in this time?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't live 30 years without changing your ideas about things. Probably the biggest shift uh, for us, and I think for a lot of families, is when we came into homeschooling, there was this idea that somehow you were going to do school at home, that you were going to somehow replicate the very institution you're trying to not be like. And so you get a nice little pile of textbooks with a number on the cover for each of your kids, and you start to administer curriculum. And you know, that can go on for you know years. And then you start to realize this is frustrating. It's very inefficient. They're they're not learning as successfully as I didn't learn when I was in school. So what can you do differently? And uh, I would say the first uh, significant influence for me was uh, John Taylor Gatto. Are you familiar with Mr. Gatto's work, Uh, He wrote Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education, um, Weapons of Mass Instruction. And then his kind of big magnum opus was uh, the book, An Underground History of American Education. And those, I think, are tremendously helpful for all of us, especially those of us who uh, went to schools for our whole childhood. Because, you know, as a teacher, as a teaching parent, as an adult... the the single most significant thing you bring to teaching your children is your experience of having been taught. And so having to kind of undo that and realize that, you know, for lack of a better term, we're all kind of schoolaholics. We are, you know, programmed in a way of thinking and behaving, and we have to work hard to not just continue in that direction. So reading Gatto, going to homeschool conventions, uh, listening to some of the other, uh, you know, even before us, there were pioneers. And they all kind of have the same thing. It's not about academics. It's about relationship and discipleship. It's about experience. It's about customizing for kids opportunities so they can grow in wisdom and virtue. And, you know, it's easy to sit back and say, yeah, after doing this 30 some years, I will tell you academics is the least important thing about homeschooling. But, you know, all the young people who've got a six year old and they're thinking, oh, no, I have to be sure I don't fail this kid so they can get into college, you know. And so there's that conceptual adjustment that we all have to go through and. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned my wife had a degree in elementary education. So for her, it was even a little bit harder because she had an additional five years of, I don't know, programming, brainwashing, you know, institutionalizing to overcome. So that'd be the, the biggest shift.
1: I have actually heard from other moms who have that sort of education background that it's actually makes it harder. People say, oh, it must be so much easier for you. And they're like, no, it's so much harder to break free of those boxes. Well, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today is this idea about memory work, because anyone who's been around humility and doxology or this podcast for any length of time knows that something I am passionate about and love to talk about encourage homeschool parents to include in their homeschools is beautiful, true memory work. But somehow, even when we're talking about beautiful memory work, like speeches or poetry or, or even scripture sometimes, although less with that, I think most people uh, agree that we should memorize memorize the Bible. But other than that, memory work still kind of has this negative connotation in education, education. And home education circles. So I wanted to like start with this sort of big-picture idea and first define what do we even really mean when we talk about memory or memory work?
0: Yeah it's interesting because the word memorization does for many people carry a negative connotation uh, along with terms like rote learning and drill. Those all have negative effects. In fact, you walk into any room with teachers and say, drill and, and they will all chorus back, kill, you know, whereas <clears throat> when I was a child and before that, um, they didn't have that same negative connotation. Um, rote meant you knew something so well, you didn't have to try to remember it, right? You you knew it by rote. That was a good thing. Um you know, to to have learned uh, scripture, poetry, music, excerpts from famous speeches. This was kind of a a totally normal thing that everyone did back, you know, before the early 1900s. Uh, it's interesting if you um, read a book or watch a movie about kids in the 1800s, things like Little House on the Prairie, Anna Green Gables, Little Britches, that kind of genre, you will very likely hear in the course of the movie or reading the book, more likely, an expression that was common in that time period, which is never used today. And that would be, I have to go to school and say my lessons. Say my lessons. No one ever would say that now because what do you do? You go to school and you take a, you know, a multiple guess test on a tablet to prove whether you learned something or not. But in in those days, children were responsible for huge chunks of memorized language and facts and and material all the way from you know their earliest years in grade one all the way through high school, and so. I think what happened was it was a very misguided application of Deweyism. So John Dewey, in the early 1900s, he had his little lab school at the University of Chicago, and he wrote books like Education and Experience, and everybody was all quite enamored with Dewey, and not everything he said or wrote was in error. But I think one of the greatest errors he introduced was this idea that memorization at best is a waste of time and more likely will stifle um, creativity and curiosity. And so we we have this big hangover of Deweyism in the world of education such that most teachers my age and younger were basically taught that you should never make children memorize things. Um, Now, that's an interesting shift because in the last 10 years in particular, uh, that has been eclipsed by the philosophy that you really don't have to memorize anything because technology can provide it for you instantaneously. And so now we have these twin prongs of the hangover of of misguided educational philosophy from Dewey and his followers, along with uh, technology why learn dates of a war? Why learn what somebody said? Why even memorize scripture? It's right on your phone. And so there's there's that that now twin prong argument against memory. But uh, my mother was a music teacher. And I I feel very, very blessed by having grown up in a home. She taught piano and voice. And I was a violin student from a very young age. So what I reflected on um, somewhat recently was the fact that she never used the word memorize. She never said you have to memorize your piece. She always used the word you have to learn by heart. You have to learn it by heart. So if you knew a piece of music that you were going to say, you know, go and play on a recital, you had learned it by heart. And I, I think we all forget that when we commit to memory, we're doing far more than just furnishing the mind. What you memorize, it becomes a part of your soul in a way. And you know, to this day, I have music and poems and scriptures that are so deep inside me that it's more than just... You know, a mental thing. It's more than just oh, I memorized it mechanically, so I can spit it back. Or people use this word "regurgitate" in a in a condescending or derogatory manner. Um, no, it's it's deeper inside me than even my conscious mind. So there's a few things to consider there. Number one, all children will memorize stuff. They're wired to do it. That's how they learn a language. That's how everybody learns everything is through imitation and memory. And if you don't give them good and beautiful things to memorize, they'll memorize stupid stuff. They'll memorize garbage, TV commercials, rap songs, right? So uh, that's one thought. Another thought is the higher the quality, the more the good, the true, and the beautiful that is in what you are committing to memory and furnishing your mind with and learning by heart the better you will be. Your soul is enriched by that. And that's something I don't think a lot of people necessarily reflect on in the day-to-day business of memorizing multiplication tables because uh, you won't let your kids have a calculator or whatever mean thing you're doing as a homeschool mom.
1: I love what you just said. I got goosebumps because on one of my uh, favorite posts, I share 12 poems that I think everyone should know by heart. And in that post, I actually make the case that I like to speak of it as knowing by heart rather than memorization, because these things that we are are meditating on really do become a part of who we are, even when we can't recite them necessarily word perfectly, which we'll get into later. But that's something I think is so important to, to realize. And now I feel like, oh, I said something true because Pudua's mom said the same thing. <laughs> well, okay, so we've talked about sort of this big picture idea. Are there any academic and linguistic values to memorization? Maybe for someone who's listening and is thinking, okay, yeah, but like, tell me about this academic value.
0: Oh, it's it's huge. Um, I have somewhat of a background in child brain development. As you mentioned, I worked for um, Glenn Doman and a team of very, very brilliant people. And so for three years, I was just steeped in... Um, learning and helping to teach parents of brain-injured children truths about how the brain works. And so when we make connections between neurons to store information, there are variables. The first variable would be repetition or what we might call frequency. Uh, So when we hear something or say something or do something again and again and again and again, the neurons that allow for us to do that the first time, they keep making those same connections again and again and again, until we can do it without having to think hard to make those connections. It becomes kind of like a second nature. We can say something that we know without having to figure out what word is next, right? Um, and, And really the truth is everything we learn from what our mother's face looks like to how to conjugate a Latin verb or how to do a layup on the basketball court. I mean, anything that we can say or know or do or recognize, we do that because we've had repetition of neurons making connections with other neurons. So that first variable of frequency or repetition is extraordinarily important and you have to have that to do anything at all.
1: And now let's hear from our podcast sponsor. If you're looking for a gentle and engaging way to prepare your child for reading, you have to check out the wonderful All About Reading pre-reading program from All About Learning Press. This delightful but highly effective program lays a strong foundation for reading by teaching the big five essential pre-reading skills. Print awareness, phonological awareness, letter knowledge, listening comprehension, and motivation to read. Through hands-on activities and stories, preschoolers learn uppercase and lowercase letters, rhyming, counting syllables, letter sounds, and so much more. Moms and dads love the easy-to-teach, open-and-go scripted lessons, but it's Ziggy the Zebra Puppet that really adds the sparkle to the pre-reading program. Kids love Ziggy because he learns right along with them, helping them feel empowered, successful, and eager to learn more. If you're ready to help your child discover the love of reading, check out All About Reading pre-reading at allaboutreading.com or click the link in the show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out the uppercase and lowercase letter crafts books for even more cut and paste alphabet fun. Find it all at allaboutreading.com.
0: Now, uh, there are a couple other variables. One would be intensity or power of stimulation. So if we think back to our childhood when we were seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, and we remember something, it may have only happened once, but we remember it because the intensity of the experience uh, could be painful, maybe dramatic, maybe very exciting, maybe thrilling. For me, most of my memories have intensity and are attached to pain, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, But those one-off memories, uh, we need little repetition because the intensity is so high, right? Uh, We use, we can leverage intensity to help kids remember things. For example, most people, if you say I before E, they will complete that by saying except after C, and that is a mnemonic device to help them learn to spell a certain set of words that follow that particular guideline. Uh, of course, you also have to go memorize all the exceptions to the rule because it's not really a rule in the literal sense. But we we had that mnemonic, so that increases intensity, so we don't need quite the same amount of repetition, right? Um, most people find that 5 times 5 and 6 times 6 are easier to memorize than 8 times 7, right? Because somehow the, the 5 times 5, 25, and the 6 times 6, 36 – Uh, have a greater intensity or charm or balance or symmetry or rhythmic quality or the rhyme scheme. Um, uh, So there's, you know, certain things that are just harder for everybody. And so they need more repetition. And that would be true with stuff like, you know, math facts, spelling words, geography, etc. Then there's duration, which would be the reinforcement over time. And so we all have experience of learning something with high repetition, holding it long enough to pass a quiz, pass a test, use it somehow. But then if there's no reinforcement, those neural connections will dissipate and we won't remember something that we used to know. So looking at those three variables, then as teachers and parents and coaches for kids trying to cultivate memory, we would say okay we need we need enough repetition we also want to add intensity drama you know imagination to that and space that repetition over time so there's reinforcement with the goal of lifetime retention and so those are kind of the three variables and oftentimes people don't they don't think about the fact that those variables are present And in doing so, they make it a little harder for themselves or their children to learn things and memorize things.
1: This makes me think, as someone who was, music was a big part of my growing up, and and memorization does not come as easily to me as it does to other people. I have to work much harder at it. That doesn't mean that I don't still do it, but it's just harder. And um, there are some embarrassing piano recital stories that would bear me out with that. But I will never forget when I was... Uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe 12 years old or so. And my teacher assigned me Gollywog's Cakewalk. And I went home and I listened to it and I just fell in love with this piece of music. And one week later, I came back to lessons with the whole song, completely memorized, just loved it so much. And so sometimes that just, um, I guess you were you know, using like the intensity, uh, but sometimes the intensity too of just like loving something deeply yeah. can really connect with our memory as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that we can consider in this process of furnishing the mind, memorizing, um, is that when you get into a certain uh, area of cultivating memory, there's a law of increasing returns. Meaning, the more you have memorized, the easier it is to memorize more of that thing. I'm sure you've experienced this that, you know, with scripture or maybe with Latin vocabulary or uh, music, certainly. I've seen this as a music teacher for half my life, uh, half my adult life, I guess. Um, The more repertoire that a student carries around in their mind and heart, the easier it is to add to that repertoire. So the first 10 Scripture verses that you try to memorize, you you know, you may find, well, that's really hard, and it took me a long time. Um, But then the 11th one comes easier and faster than the 10th one, and the 12th one, providing they're of approximately the same length uh, or, or complexity, comes easier and faster. This is why a music student should maintain a memorized repertoire. So, you know, if you learn a piece, play it on a recital and forget it, learn another piece, play it on a recital, forget it, learn another piece, et cetera, you could learn 10 pieces, but at the end of the year, how many do you know? Maybe one, and then you forget it. Whereas if you maintain all the pieces that you've committed to memory by playing them often enough so that you don't forget them, well, learning that 12th piece is going to go twice as fast or even more than twice as fast as learning the first one. And so I've uh, constantly been preaching this to, you know, parents of my music students, is if you want everything to go well, if you want to learn new pieces easily and smoothly and happily, maintain all the pieces you've ever learned. And so I carried this over into uh, our program on poetry memorization which is essentially a Suzuki method for memorizing poetry so that you say every poem you've learned every day until you don't have enough time, and then you say every other poem you've learned every other day till you don't have enough time, and every third poem every third day, and you just constantly recite all the poems you've ever learned. And then learning a new poem, even three or four or five stanzas, is so much easier than if you didn't have that great bank of memorized poetry.
1: Oh, you're inspiring me to get back out our old poems and review them. That is something I haven't considered how that affects even the ability to memorize new, new things. So that's great. Now, one of the reasons why I really prioritize poetry and scripture memory, historic speeches in my own homeschool with my kids, is that I want their minds and hearts to be filled with things that are true. We are in a in a time where they're constantly being bombarded with things that are not true. And so I want their hearts kind of fortified with these things that are beautiful and true. And I sometimes joke with them that if they're ever in a difficult situation, they're going to be really glad they know Death Be Not Proud by John Donne and, you know, necessarily a date of a historic battle is probably not going to bring the same level of comfort to them. So when we're thinking about memorization, we've talked about different aspects of it, but kind of getting to this heart issue, how does what we memorize affect our children's imagination and development of virtue?
0: Sure. Um, Well, there's a a few ways to look at this. Um, One thing I will mention, something that I have mentioned in many talks I've given on the subject um, because to me this particular man is one of the most remarkable people to ever live and that is Frederick Douglass. Uh, You know a lot of people are familiar because he wrote um, several versions of an autobiography. I have read them all. I have read many biographies of Frederick Douglass. I am fascinated with this man for not just basic historical reasons, but because educationally, he had a very, very odd circumstance, right? He was born a slave. He grew up as an enslaved person in a time and place where it was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read or write. And he lived in a fairly abusive, very harsh, abusive situation separated from his parents at a young age for the first 12 years of his life, which, neurologically speaking, would be the most important developmental period in a child's life. And I think you could argue, short of maybe being chained in a closet, he had the worst educational environment that you could imagine during the most important developmental period of his life. And yet he became... I would argue, the greatest orator our country has ever produced. Now, you might argue that some people before him, maybe Patrick Henry, whatnot, were superior in some ways. But if you go, for example, and I would encourage all the listeners to do this, just go read his speech, which is very often titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? It is an amazing, amazing speech, and it it just will blow your mind with how eloquent it is, how many um, incredible allusions and references he makes to the Bible and history and other things, And, and, you know, he was regarded as the greatest public speaker of his time, and I don't think anyone exceeded that. Uh, you might make an argument for someone like Abraham Lincoln, but certainly there's no comparison in terms of education. And then I, 20th century, forget it. There's nobody as articulate um, in in the last 100, 120, 50 years as Frederick Douglass. So it kind of raises the question, how? How did this happen? He had the worst possible education. He became the most articulate, eloquent, and powerful um communicator of his day, well, we know because someone asked him and said, Mr. Douglas, how did you become such a powerful speaker? And this is his answer. He said, one of the first books that I owned was the Columbian Orator. This was published in 1795, if my memory is correct. It was essentially a collection of of the greatest speeches that had been given throughout the history of the world, from Cicero to, um, you know, probably Augustine, all the way up to Martin Luther, Patrick Henry. Things that had been said or translated into English. The best. And he essentially said, I committed them all to memory. He memorized a whole book of speeches. Well, what did that do? furnished his mind, not just with vocabulary, which is huge, because you can't really think a thought you don't have words to think it in, at least you can't do so in a concrete way to make it communicable. It furnishes my not with the not just with the vocabulary, not just with the beautiful syntax and grammar of the English language, not just with that and the literary devices, the schemes and tropes that make language effective and beautiful, but also with the seminal ideas of what is right and true and just according to, well, essentially God's law and perennial truth. So it it steeped his mind in all of that. So when he went to give speeches, he was able to draw on all of that, not just the language, but the beauty and and the, the richness of concept that had been developed for 2,000 or more years. And if Frederick Douglass can become that type of person, I'm sure he had a very high intelligence to begin with. Any child today could furnish their mind in a similar way for perhaps a similar mission, to speak the truth into a world that is in desperate need of that. So, that's one way I would look at it. Um, if I can keep going here, I'll I'll Please. give you my other angle on this. Last year, I did a conference talk about, oh, seven, eight times, I think, called Preparing for Persecution, a Curriculum Proposal. And my argument in this was... Um, we, as Christians in, in the West, in America, in North America, in Western culture as it is, um, could actually face a a literal persecution. We could have rights stripped from us. We could be oppressed. We could, and we're seeing it. People say the wrong thing. What happens? The bank decides we don't want you as a customer. We'll, we'll, cancel your bank accounts, will cut you off, Um, the ability uh, for technology to oppress people is greater than ever before in the history of mankind, and we could even face a point where we would be cut off from everything. Maybe we end up without a home, without a car, without our family and friends as support, maybe we end up in prison. Maybe. Worst case scenario, we end up with no phone. How, how would we survive? What would remain if we didn't have our books, if we didn't have our computers, if we didn't have our, our resources, even the people? We would be, I mean, imagine worst case scenario. You're in prison, naked, cold, starving. What do you have left? Only what you carry around in your mind. And I have read over the, in in the process of preparing for this talk and contemplating it, I've read several um, autobiographies and biographies about people who suffered in prison um, extreme persecution for long periods of time. And what's so notable, two things. Number one, they were profoundly grateful for what they knew. They were profoundly grateful for the scripture or the things they had studied or the stories they could recall to memory and share with other people in that same condition. And uh, so they were just profoundly grateful for knowing stuff. And so I think that, you know, it's our responsibility to furnish our minds so that if everything were stripped from us, if we couldn't just ask our phone something, if we couldn't just pull our Bible off the shelf and open it up to remind us of what it says, um, would we have enough stored? Would we have enough that we know by heart? Would we have our it readily accessible in our mind that it could help sustain us through those times? And, you know, one guy in particular just blew my mind. This guy was in prison in Cuba for 21 years under Castro, suffering the worst, horrible, Armando Velarde is his name, suffering the worst kind of, of horrific abuse. Um, and, and he could have ended it. He could have stopped it all by simply agreeing to go to the re-education program and accept the communist principles. And he said, no, I am a political prisoner and I will stay here and claim my identity as a political prisoner, right? And what sustained him, he would recite to himself things he'd learned as a child. He would give lectures on things that he had studied to other prisoners to keep his mind active. So, you know, I think this idea, we, no one wants to think of worst case scenario you know, our our kids or us or our grandchildren being physically oppressed and abused or imprisoned for their faith or their ideal. But, you know, it's not impossible. And if it doesn't happen, well, guess what? We're richer for having been ready for it. So that's kind of my point in that preparing for persecution idea. So that's a lot to lay on people, but that's kind of where I've been thinking these last couple of years.
1: And in that story you shared, it wasn't just for his own personal sustenance in that dark time, but he was able to share that hope in the community, even with the other people who were imprisoned with him. So the things that we know by heart, these things that we're storing up for potential hard times, I mean, all of us are going to face dark times in the future this side of glory, right? Um, No matter what that looks like, we will all face hard times. And so to be able to have these things that not only bring joy and hope to our own hearts, but things that we can share with others, that's really a gift. And I think that's something we can sometimes forget when we think about memory work or memorization, because it seems like something inside your own head, right? Like it's a very personal thing. And it is personal, but it's something that's designed to be shared think of paul and silas right singing hymns in prison and the lord uh breaks them free but that is how like there's this whole transformation of that town and that jailer and the lives a rippling effect yeah you think of the, heart.
0: the early christians martyrs going to their death singing hymns and psalms well if you're gonna do that you better know them
1: Yeah, exactly. So hymns and psalms, you guys. I will put some links for references for studying uh, and singing the psalms in particular um, in the show notes because that's something important to me. Um, I'll also add to the show notes, if you're listening, make sure you check those out. Um, I have a free resource for historic speeches, actually, one of which is... Frederick Douglass's speech that you mentioned earlier. I think I have like 13 speeches. So I share kind of little excerpts, but then I have a printable. It's like over a hundred pages. I originally oh, had it in. That's the,
0: wonderful. In, originally well,
1: it was in the blog post and then it was like, this is too long for Google. So well, I had that, to, uh, that's
0: something yeah. I would love to share too, just in general. So uh, be sure that you send that to me as well. So I can put links to it Because I'm often asked, um, you know, people hear me talk and they come up and say, I'm convinced, where do I start? And so, you know, we have a, a poetry memorization program we sell, but I also point out, you know, all the good stuff is free, right? All the best poems are public domain all the best speeches that have ever been given are readily available but they do need the list they need to know where to start especially so many i, I mean so many moms who they kind of just pulled their kids out of school you know a year or two ago or yesterday and they really do not know they they don't have the tradition of homeschooling to 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 join into in the same way that you know, you had or my kids had. And so, you know, they're they're saying, well, tell me what to do. I want to do it, but I don't know. So please share that with me. And, and then I can put that out as well, uh, especially when I'm at a conference and people say, OK, well, where should I start?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I will send you that link. It's not all of the great speeches, but it's certainly a good place to start, because if you just go to the internet and are like, what speeches should I read? There's too many. You just need a starting place, right? Well, and
0: it's, you know, and like anything, you have to start with one. Yes. We we have to start with one thing, and if that one thing goes well, then you can do another one thing, and then another one thing, and then pretty soon you can have half a dozen things, but uh, that you know, tell me what to do first is so important, whether it's, good heavens, music or cooking or memorizing.
1: Yeah, definitely. No. Good. I know
0: a bank a light of doors, where the white house There
1: are clips and nine violet
0: grows.
1: Oh, my heart. That little clip is of my youngest daughter when she was just two years old and she was lisping her way along with our family's Shakespeare memory, the very same Shakespeare that I was memorizing with the rest of the kids in Morning Time can you really introduce your, your kids to Shakespeare? Can you easily include Shakespeare's works in your homeschool curriculum? Shakespeare for kids? Surely that is a crazy idea. But let me reassure you, exploring Shakespeare with your children can be fun and easy. And if you don't believe me, I challenge you to watch my free Getting Started with Shakespeare workshop, where you can explore some of the resources I rounded up, learn my three quick tips for getting started with Shakespeare, and then you'll be on your way way to exploring Shakespeare's masterpieces with your kids of all ages. You can head to humilityanddoxology.com slash exploring-shakespeare-children, or just check the link in the show notes for more details. Well, when we think about memorization— Like I think about even within my own children, I have that kid. I'm sure many of my listeners have that one kid who like reads the thing one time and suddenly can just spout it all back. And the rest of us are just a little bit irritated at the corner of the living room. Okay. But you have other children who maybe just is not a natural gift or maybe have some sort of other challenge where memorization just is really hard. So is there value in continuing in this process of memory work even if maybe a child never gets it completely word-perfect or really, really struggles?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A couple of thoughts. Um, First of all, one of the logistical um, benefits of reciting everything you know every day is that, okay, you have a group of kids, whether it's a, a home with kids of different ages or a class where everybody's approximately the same age, or even a group of college students, everyone's going to have a different aptitude and need different amount of repetitions to memorize. If you have a culture where you're basically reciting everything you've learned every day, then the ones who know it, okay, they're going to keep knowing it, and they're contributing to the experience of group recitation by being on the strong side. And then you've got younger kids or kids who are less apt, that are getting another repetition, another opportunity. They can try. They can do it. And you see this with young children. You you watch a three-year-old um, joining in to say, you know, a table blessing. Well, they don't get every word when they're three years old. But they try. And they follow along. And by the time they're six, they probably get every word. And they could say it just like everybody else says it. And so... Uh, That doesn't mean that it's not worth having them join in when they're three. In fact, it's creating the aptitude so that it'll be easier downline for them to memorize more. So this kind of group recitation where, yeah, some people know it, other people are still learning it, gives everyone a chance to move on that pathway towards, I don't know, mastery or second nature or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, logistically, that, I think, is a very important idea. The other d- idea that that comes to mind is having specific goals for recitation, right? Individual recitation. So, there's group, and then there's individual. We see this, say, um, I don't know if you've ever had any kids getting into competitive uh, speech and debate, but... you you get into a point where you say, okay, I'm going to memorize this poem or this speech and I'm going to practice it and practice it and practice it until I can stand in front of my peers and other people's parents and random people like judges and recite this as best I can. Uh, That Having that goal can be very motivating to kids. And I would say particularly around middle school, When kids tend to be less happy about making mom happy and more interested in just doing whatever they want to do. And so it's harder to get at a certain age, it's harder to get kids motivated yourself. Um, That's where they become very uh, helpful in terms of motivating kids of that age. And I've seen this, you know, again and again and again. So there are, you know, both in the homeschool world, cultures that do that as well as in the larger world opportunities for kids to to write a speech memorize it and give it or learn someone else's speech and give that kind of acting like the person who gave the speech a declamation or poetry recitation there this this is not completely dead from our culture it's just very narrowly available but you can you can find that out poetry alive I think is one organization that promotes that.
1: And, you know, if somebody is maybe turned off by the idea of like a competition or can't imagine adding one more thing, I know when I was growing up, our homeschool group would have like a night of the arts, kind of a big end of year celebration, and everyone could come and perform or share one thing, whether that be a speech or Uh, you know, a bit of Shakespeare or a a piece of music or something like that. So there are ways to fit it in where it doesn't feel like you're making one more commitment too. that can have that same motivating um, impact in a child who's maybe not so sure.
0: Yeah. And and like my grandchildren aren't old enough to really do any of that competition social stuff, but they will um, learn poems and then their mother will record the poems on the phone and send me the video of them saying the poem. So, uh, you know, I'm not there, uh, but I am an audience. And having an audience is very motivating to everyone, really. And I'm a very friendly audience because, of course, I'm the grandpa, I'm going to love whatever they do. And uh, so I appreciate, you know, my daughters who have worked in that direction of kind of maintaining my involvement as a positive motivational factor for their kids to show me what they can do.
1: Oh, I love that. Yes. We always love sharing stuff with the grandparents too. It's very fun. The kids get a kick out of it and it doesn't feel scary to them, but it gives them just enough of that motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I'm really curious if there has been a particular thing you have memorized over the years that just comes up in your own memory, or is something that really has struck your heart over <clears throat> over the t- over time?
0: Well, I would say that although I did not grow up in a Christian home, um, my mother—I mean, our family was culturally Christian. We did Easter and Christmas, and my mother would drag my sister and me into Mount Olive Lutheran Church. I don't know, maybe somewhere between two and six times a year. Our family religion was actually sailing. And when the weather was good, which was almost all the time in Southern California, we'd spend the weekends on our sailboat because that was my dad's thing. So I didn't grow up as a, you know, any Christian culture the way, say, you did, or the way that, you know, I have tried to create for my children. But for some reason, I did memorize the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm, and, and I, I don't remember why or how I was motivated to do this. But that doing that at a young age, it just stuck with me my whole life, whether I thought it meant anything or not. The truth of it was deeply embedded. Um, and so I kind of look at that as just one of those things that cultivated the soil of my soul uh, in a way that later, I was in my mid-30s I, when I came to Christ. So I'm, I'm often contemplating what were the things in my childhood that weren't overtly Christian, but were helping to, like I said, you know, cultivate, aerate, enrich the soil of my soul so that I could respond to the the seeds of the gospel message Um, another thing that I did as a kid was I memorized poems because my parent my dad loved to read poems on our boat so we'd be over at Catalina Island there's nothing to do there's no radio there's no tv there's no internet there's no nothing and so it was kind of like being totally cut off And so he would read poems, same poems, week after week, year after year. So I memorized a few poems. Uh, Jabberwocky was one of my absolute favorites. And the embarrassing episode of Little Miss Muffet by Guy Wetmore Carroll. And it's funny because, you know, I carried these around with me my whole life. So wherever I would go, I could entertain people. And, you know, that's not a super high and noble calling. But it was really fun to have these kind of humorous, dramatic poems to share. I was a counselor at summer camp in my early teens an assistant counselor. So, you know, I would recite poems to kids there because I knew them. And of course, Jabberwocky is kind of the ultimate, you know, defeat evil story. It's it's a fairy tale encapsulated in a few stanzas in a way that, you know, I just I just adored it. And so I've maintained certain poems like that um that have been very useful i would say more recently um i have combined my desire to memorize more with my desire to improve my latin because i taught latin for six years but i really just don't have any fluency of putting words together and um I tell the story uh, in one of my talks, Nurturing company Communicators, about when I was living in Japan and I memorized a Japanese version of Jack and the Beanstalk in order to expand my vocabulary and my use of grammar and so that memorized patterns would kind of hop out of Jack and the Beanstalk. I could change the nouns, verbs, adjectives, articles. I could change the words, but keep the grammatical pattern. And that became a kind of a a breakthrough in my fluency of speaking Japanese when I was living there. So I was reflecting on that. And so I, I started to memorize Latin prayers. And I'm also kind of on a health kick, which means I'm trying to spend 12 to 15 minutes in 185 to 90 degree sauna, five, six days a week. <clears throat> and time moves very slowly when you're that uncomfortable. So in order to help the time pass, I just go in and I recite my Latin prayers, you know, very, very quietly. I don't want to freak out anybody else that might be in the, the sauna at the gym. But um, it's very interesting how, you know, everything's true. The first one was hard and it took a lot of time. It was like I, I could sometimes only add one or two words a day to this Latin prayer. And then, you know, once I got it, I would recite that several times every day. And then I started in on the next one and I would just, I basically recite everything that I've got. Um as much as I can to eat up the 12-minute target of being in a 190-degree sauna. And it is it is getting easier. It's fascinating. And it's, it's also interesting that the Latin words are connected with the English words. And sometimes I'll be thinking in English and that Latin word, because I memorized it, it'll just kind of pop into my mind at the same time. So I think... For those who are pursuing a foreign language, as I experienced both in Japanese in my early 20s and as I'm experiencing now with these Latin prayers, um, there's there's benefits that way as well. And I don't know, there's also something kind of with English memorized prayers, it seems to be very easy to get mechanical about it. Mm And I'm not opposed to memorized prayers at all. I think they have a, a whole lot of value, in addition to, of course, spontaneous prayers. But you know, in a way, memorizing the Psalms was like memorized prayers. That's what it was. Jesus said, pray like this, you know. Um, but uh, when I'm in this world of Latin, because it's not as familiar, I'm even more engaged in thinking about the meaning you know anime christi sanctifica me corpus christi salvame, sanguis christi inebria me right you know soul of christ sanctify me body of christ save me blood of christ inebriate me and so there's this in there's this intellectual and spiritual and emotional engagement with these memorized latin prayers i never would have predicted when i began doing it for much less Ah, uh, noble spiritual reasons.
1: <laughs> my teen daughter's French teacher is a dear friend of mine, um a local lady. and, She, from the very beginning of French 1, they're now in French 2, but um, has included recitation of the catechism in French Mm. with the students at the beginning. And so they're working through, uh, uh, my daughter anyway, recognizes the, um, it's a, a very simplified children's catechism that we use in our church. And so it's the same things that she's familiar with in English, and now she's reciting them in French. Now, is she quite to that level of French Not really, but kind of like you were saying, it's training your mind, it's kind of developing your ability to think um, in this other language in a really unique and and practical way, too. You know, I know sometimes we like want to avoid the word practical, but I don't think there's anything wrong with being practical, too.
0: Well, sometimes the things that seem the least practical end up being the most valuable. Mm -hmm. And we can't necessarily always judge that well. Um, And I think that's, you know, getting back to the first question you asked me, you know, how have things changed over time in, in homeschooling is we tend to want to be very utilitarian. We want to teach this because we need it on a transcript. We want to teach this because it's going to give these particular skills. We're going to teach this because it builds towards, I hate the term, but people use it, college and career readiness, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I think after, you know, a decade or so, y- you don't have to justify it. You can say, well, let's read this because it's beautiful. Let's contemplate this because it will enrich us. And there is no immediate practical utilitarian value. Um, and yet later on, then we look back and say, I'm so much richer. I'm so much better for having done that. Um so, you know, in a way, um, we want I think we want to be very careful about saying, well, we we have to do everything for a reason. Some of the best things we may do might have been for no reason at all. And then we look back and say, well, I'm sure glad we did that.
1: Well, because education rightly understood is about making us more fully human. And so all these things that are humanizing in a in a biblical Christian sense of what it means to be truly humanized are are a gift to our education and a gift to our children, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, this has been such a delight to get to chat with you kind of in person over the computer. And here at the end, I'm going to ask you the questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first is just, what are you personally reading lately?
0: Um. Okay, so... I, I always have two or three things going at once. One is audio, because I, I do a lot of audiobooks. And then things that are more technical or that I want to stop and contemplate, I usually read those on paper. Um, so the book that I just finished on audio is a biography of the father of Alexander Dumas, who wrote *The Three Musketeers* and um, *Count of Monte Cristo*? His father, also named Alexandre Dumas, was just this incredible, mind-blowing person. He was um, he was born of a count, uh, a French count, and a black slave in what is now Haiti. And his father kind of disowned him, and so he got over to France and enlisted in the French army as a private, and although he had nobility, he was also black, and and he had no wealth, and so it's his story. He rose up to become mm. broadly acknowledged as the strongest and most brilliant general in the French army during the time of the French Revolution and then under Napoleon. Only Napoleon, I think, felt um, threatened by him in many ways. But what's really interesting to me is how his life experiences filtered into the novels of The Count of Monte Cristo. In fact, the the subtitle of the book, it's, it's called The Black Count, The Real Life Count of Monte Cristo fascinating book and i love well-written biographies because you end up learning a whole lot of history but it's contained within the narrative of a good story and so i learned more about the french revolutionary time period than than i had previous to this and um so i i finished that book and then i try to alternate fiction non-fiction and i'm listening to a book i'm very unhappy to be listening to it's called the cheese trap and i fear that this book is going to convince me that i would be healthier if i stop eating cheese
1: oh and well, i don't well, want do you warned that. me i should yeah, not yeah i don't
0: want to do that uh but it's a compelling argument and then um i'm reading a a book by a friend of mine called going deeper and it's essentially an a, a, a an apologetic for the existence of God based on reason. And so it's starting with a argument toward first cause. So it's really a classical um, argument for Christianity, uh, be, but but through the path of reason. And, you know, this I think is very valuable for us because so many times we run around and we say, how do we know that's true? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, there's a whole lot of people that don't accept the Bible as a source of truth. And so how do we how do we draw them into a, a, an argument of reason w- toward the existence of God? And then once you get to the existence of God, then... You move on from there. So, uh, anyway, it's by a friend of mine. It's very well done. he's He's a very good writer, and it's a tiny little small book. And uh, so I started that. And then I also am reading a book by uh, it's a collection of stories by a friend of mine who have an organization that ministers to parents who've lost children. It's called Our hearts Our And so it's it's a collection of stories uh, by parents who lost children. Um, and how they were, they found comfort in their faith through that. So kind of a weird mishmash of stuff. I wouldn't say any one of those is a classic, you know. uh, But um, hey, you know, I'm at a point in life where uh, I'm probably not going to read 95% of the books that I own. But I don't have to.
1: That's right. I actually read a very compelling article shared by a friend in my book club with me this past year that was talking about the power of all the unread books in our home and how it teaches us to be humble humble because we Mm. can never actually know everything there is to know. And so the argument was we should always have more books than we could read, which I really need to share this article with my husband and uh, be like, no, really, all these bookshelves that are overflowing, these are to help my sanctification,
0: I I heard a fantastic quote, I don't know who originally said it or where it came from, but it really resonated with me, which is, a man's bookshelf is not who he is, it is who he aspires to be. I love that. And when I look at all the books that I have not read, that I would like to read, I hope it's reflecting who I'm hoping to be someday, only at my age it's only going to be on the other side.
1: (laughs) Yes, farther up and further in. <laughs> Final question would be, what is your best tip for helping homeschool day run smoothly?
0: Oh, wow, this is totally changed. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and probably say something that people would challenge as being the most important thing. But because my life, my mind, my heart, my spirit has been totally transformed because of this in the last few years, I'm going to say exercise. Oh. I think that every homeschool would do very well to to not, if not start with, but in the morning sometime have an organized group exercise time for the whole family. Um, well, maybe dad's gone, but we do not do this well in the homeschool world, and I think for a couple reasons. One is we look at kids, and they're already moving all the time anyway, so you're like, what I really want them to do is just stop moving for a little bit, sit down and listen to me. Um, but I I think there's some real um, value in organized, consistent things like calisthenics and resistance training, that are so good, not just for the body, but for metabolism, for processing nutrients. You know, people say you are what you eat. No, you are what you absorb. Um, And uh, I'm increasingly aware of a lot of homeschool families that especially they just came into homeschooling because they pulled their kids out at COVID and they're not attuned to physical side that allows for better intellectual and spiritual growth. So uh, I I would very strongly encourage all parents to say, okay, where in our schedule can we just take half an hour and do family calisthenics? And uh, I started a, a program, uh, not this year, but the year before of doing a certain number of push-ups, increasing one every day. So whenever the grandchildren would come over, I'd be like, okay, it's push-ups time, you know, because I got to get a couple hundred in before the end of the day. And uh, they respond so well to this, to this kind of structured, consistent, athletic, move your body, build your muscles idea. And it's like anything. If, it's like memory work. If we don't consciously do it, we will default to not doing it or doing it inconsistently and and uh, not getting the benefit. So that's my kind of uh, probably off the norm suggestion for having the best homeschool day you can have is is get the exercise that will allow everything else to go more smoothly.
1: I love that, y'all. You heard it here. Don't be agnostic, okay? The body matters too. We're going to have push-up challenges entering everyone's morning time routines this this semester. (laughs) This has been so wonderful. Thank you for chatting with us today. Uh, Where can people find you and your resources all around the internet?
0: Pretty easy. We broke down and did it. We bought this somewhat expensive three-letter domain name. So now we own it, IEW.com. And it's got, you know, links to all of my talks and uh, free PDF downloads and, of course, all the products. And then we have a pretty good presence on both YouTube and Facebook. And so people can search for, you know, Andrew Poudoi. My name is pretty unique. There's only one other person in the world, as far as I'm aware, with that exact two names. And uh, also just IEW uh, is is pretty common. And uh, we did a A conference last week uh, where I did five convention talks and we live streamed it to the world and that's still on the Facebook page. So lots and lots of info, more than anyone would actually want or need.
1: I will have links to all of those resources in the show notes uh, with the full transcript for this episode over at humilityanddoxology.com. Thanks so much.
0: Well, thank you for your great work, Amy. God bless you.
1: Thanks for listening in on this week's homeschool conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, head to slash homeschool conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share it with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Stand fast, my friends.